It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Now, this is Blue Monday, isn't it? So so they say it's uh, yeah. one of the most miserable times of the year. Yeah. I do f- feel that they wheel out that story on a few different Mondays in sort of January I mean, and I mean, February. I mean, it's all right for you because you're in Mexico at the moment. This is true. I'm not even here. <laughs> no, exactly. I'm an illusion. Yeah. But so you're, 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 not, you're not sort of gloomy at all. No, you're back at work. I'm back at work. Do you think then we do need to be honest about the fact that we're recording this slightly in the past? Slightly in the past. But, you know, let's not dwell on that because people are sick of the festivities. You just want to get yeah. on with the year now. How um, how have your New Year's resolutions been going? Are you managing to to keep them up? So far, so good. Yeah? Um, uh, I think my New Year's resolution is to see friends more. Is that right? Yes. That's a lovely one. Because it was like such an intense end to 2019 with the election and everything determined to kind of you know reconnect that's lovely. with people that i've lost touch with that's really including nice. you yeah i mean we have still been doing the podcast yeah but, you know um so you want to know what mine is go on to see friends a bit less <laughs> just, <laughs> just try and withdraw withdraw that's a bit per- more Inclu- including you that's perfect symmetry <laughs> yeah. i mean presumably that, that sort of must be possible then that if i could if you're seeing friends less there's more room for me to see friends more yeah i mean if you wouldn't mind seeing some, some of my friends, friends on my behalf that would be great it takes it off my plate yeah. you're on. okay well, well let's shake, shake your hands on yeah. that yeah yeah. Um, so, so this week's episode, we, we have thought, you not got a New Year's resolution? Um, every year, I think I'm going to try and be a bit more charismatic, and then it fails. You are charismatic. What about what about you've the- got the charisma of imperfection? <laughs> <laughs> That's um, what they used to say about Bill Clinton. My, my my posture. I could try and improve my posture for the new year. What How's about that? what about doing a park run with me? I, I need to build my way up to that. Yeah, it's you know it's a bit much to ask of me in my yeah. current state. Yeah, it is. Your you know, state is okay. Right? It's not. I'm on the verge of sort of wearing a smock full time. That's that's how bad things have got, especially with the overindulgence over Christmas. Right. Do you think a smock would suit me? Well, what's the smock? Yeah, like sort of like a big flowing robe. Oh, I see. Like what a cult leader might wear. Oh, I see. Could you not imagine me in a caftan? I could. That's what we should get matching caftans. The next time we do a live show. Remind me of a caftan. Sort of like a long flowing sort of hippie. Think of like a hippie who's gone to live in, in, in Morocco, who's dropped out and living in Morocco. Or sort of in Oklahoma with a guru. Yeah, any any of these things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I take it you're, you're not into the idea. No of offense this. to anyone listening in Oklahoma. Right? Or listening in a caftan. Or, you know, gone to live with <laughs> it's a guru. A very, it's a very comfortable uh, garment to listen yeah, to a podcast exactly. in. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll, I'll take you under advice. Okay. Um so, so what we thought we'd do with this week's episode is give you a conversation that Ed had at the back half of yes. last year, which is going to be incredibly inspiring. Yes. It is uh, probably Blue Monday. I'm never quite sure where, when yes. it is, but it's probably Blue Monday, and people are feeling glum, and th- this will this will get you fired up. Right? And it was a conversation I did with Naomi Klein, uh, she of 
uh, No Logo uh, and her most recent book, On Fire, about climate change, why we need a Green New Deal. Uh, it was a conversation recorded at, in, at Imperial College uh, in front of a live audience. Um, and it was a great conversation. And so that's what people are going to be listening to. Before that, let me ask you, what is your first reason to be cheerful of the year? My reason to be cheerful is that Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David, as you told me, is coming back. Is I sent Series you a little, 10. I said, in, in, the, in the depths of the election campaign, I sent you a little uh, trailer video to, to cheer you up. I mean, and- I think you... You could do the, be the British Larry David, couldn't you? I feel that way. Like, you know, I think I am one of those people. I don't think I'm alone in this, but I think I'm, I see a lot of my interactions reflected in that show. Yeah. But I'm just re-watching Series 9, you know, the Fatwa one. Yes. To get myself in the in the mood Yes, for the new series. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is I went to see the new Star Wars film. Now, you know, as we said before... in Um so, so we are recording this before Christmas. I went to see it at midnight. We don't keep saying that. No, but, but like, otherwise it's, it's weird because it will have been out a few weeks at right, this point, right. won't it? Well, you might have gone to see it later on in but the But I'm day. just saying I went to yeah, see it at okay. midnight, the, the, the night it was released, and I have never seen a cinema as full, even when I've been lucky enough to go to premieres and stuff. It was rammed at midnight. I mean, there's no... I can't no imagine buying... anything worse. Did you not want to go to bed? No, I wanted to see the Star Wars. But I mean, film. it's so funny, isn't it? I mean, it's like we're just so opposite. We should have been married. I mean, it's like, you know, <laughs> I mean, I just cannot imagine anything more grim. My brother came down specially. I know, I know and as I said to him, he looks like your son. Uh, <laughs> uh, He's had an easier life than I. Have. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, uh, there we go. Yeah, good. I, I really, I really enjoyed it. I thought, you know, um, and you weren't like eyelids drooping at. Sort of- no, I'll tell you what. We went to one of these four D screenings. Have you heard of them? So you wear three. You, uh, the yawn suggests maybe you're not terribly <laughs> interested in what a four D no, screening it is. Bad night's sleep. Yeah, right. I, I was up till four watching Star Wars. Well, What's true. your excuse? Uh, so. You, you wear your 3D glasses, so it's already in 3D, and then you're in a chair that moves, Ooh. and it was like, you know when you're in an airport and you've got those massage, massage yeah, chairs that I've you can put done one of those. Not much fun. And then during the film, it felt like someone who's kicking in my back, kicking me in the back, but it wasn't. And there were flashing lights, which kept me, and I was seeing the other audience members, which I didn't want to see. No, no spraying water jets. Well, there were. They, like, spraying mist on you at some stage. There's jets of cold air. Wait, how and, much? What a rigmarole. Well, it just detracts from the film. I want to go and see it again just in normal 2d so that i don't have to put up with any of that choose stuff. to see it in 4d yeah because i thought it'd be, i didn't know what 4d was i just thought whatever the most luxurious experience of seeing this film is going to be because it's going to be closure how long did it go on for the film yeah a couple of hours right. it's, it's not overly long but I, I definitely enjoyed it but don't go and see anything in 4d is is my advice down with 4d yeah it's a new campaign yeah down with 4d don't listen to this podcast what in do, 4D. What do we want? Listen 4D, to it in a when do we want it? Never. No, never. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello, everyone. My name's Scarlett. I'm 15 years old and a member of UKSCN, which is the UK Student Climate Network. So over the past six youth strikes, we've seen hundreds of thousands of people come out onto the streets to protest the government's lack of action on the climate crisis. By definition, politics is the process by which conflict is resolved, and this is arguably the biggest conflict, the biggest crisis we have ever faced. Yet our government is not passing the scientifically necessary legislation we need. I strike because climate change won't discriminate. We need to sustain our livelihoods, our planet, our lives, and when the effects of climate change start to affect us more noticeably than they do now, we're all going to be affected, but it's those who are less privileged who will bear the brunt of it more than others. And they will be affected by it disproportionately. Climate justice and social justice go hand in hand, which is why I'm excited about Naomi's work, particularly on the Green New Deal. At UKSCN, one of our demands is for the government to implement a Green New Deal. And so Naomi's book, On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal, particularly resonates with me. I'm really excited to hear the conversation and I'm sure we're going to get some brilliant insights on the fight for our futures. Now, it's my absolute pleasure to invite you all to give a very warm welcome to Naomi Klein and Enver Miliband and invite them to take their seats. Thank you, everyone. I know Naomi needs no introduction, but 
She's an amazing campaigner, author of No Logo, The Shock Doctrine, This Changes Everything, and the book you've all got to buy, uh, On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. And just to say to the audience, you're going to get a time to ask questions of Naomi in about 20 minutes or so. So I think the idea of the Green New Deal is incredibly powerful. I just want to talk a bit about that, because you say in your book um, something which I think is profoundly important and is in a way self-critical, I think, of, of, of the movement. Uh, you say this, half the problem is that progressives, their hands full with battling systemic, economic and racial exclusions, tend to assume that big green groups have the climate issue covered. The other half of the problem is that many of the biggest big green groups have avoided with phobic precision any serious debate on the blindingly obvious roots of the climate crisis, globalization, deregulation, and contemporary capitalism's quest for perpetual growth. Talk a little bit about that sort of divide that there has been in the movement because mm. because it, it, I you know I was a yeah. climate change secretary in 20, 2008 yeah. 2010 that there is this tendency to see climate change as let's fix that problem yes. and then let's fix the economic problems right and the beauty of the green new deal is it brings both together right and i think the problem with this idea that we could we could um, separate them and there, i think there are a lot of problems with it i think it's just simply untrue because um, you know, at the heart of this crisis really is a crisis of overconsumption and a particular way of life that really isn't sustainable. Um, but there's also just this cyclical problem that we encounter where when things are going relatively well economically, and you can kind of graph this, um, then that tends to be the moment where there'll be a, like a lot of excitement and energy about doing something about the environment. Um, and and people sort of feel they're doing fairly well, so maybe they can pay a little bit more for things, and that's okay. Um, but then as soon as there's an economic downturn, it just gets wiped off the map. And that's what happened in, in Europe uh, with the 2008 financial crisis. It, it happened at a bit of a lag, yeah. right? It wasn't really until 2009 where you just started to see it just completely, the bottom drop out. But, um, no, I remember meeting with um, Alexis Tsipras before he um, was elected, when he was leader of the opposition. Yeah. And I... Um, and I made the case that, that to him, and I was working on this changes everything. I hadn't come out yet yeah. at the time. That it, this would it'd be a great time for a, a left party like his to bring together the climate crisis and the economic crisis, and talk about green jobs, and talk about how we can have a different kind of economy to get our way out of crisis, and um, and and we can have publicly owned renewable energy, community owned renewable energy that will bring resources to communities to pay for services. What did he say? He literally said to me, I think no is enough right now. And that's why my book, my last book was called No is Not Enough. (laughs) Because, no, he said to me, he said, this is a moment of rejection. This is a moment where it's so important for for Greeks to just reject this brutal austerity that is being... Um, enforced upon us, and, it's, and, and this was a moment where people were filling the squares in Athens and so many other places in Southern Europe, and and saying no, and and and, and that powerful rejection. And I think, to some extent, when you're in one of those moments, it's scary to actually pin down what you want because may, you think that maybe it'll limit who's going to be with you. Because in those sort of effervescent moments where everyone's just saying no, we don't want this. Mm. Um, it you know that's a that's that's a common binding agent right and you don't have to agree on much in order to all agree that you don't want that bad thing right um, whether it's a dictator you know or whether it's brutal austerity but the problem is when you open up that vacuum and you don't provide real solutions then 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 somebody fills the vacuum right I mean Cyprus was elected but you know I think the political disillusionment in Greece that has been left by the sort of failure to provide that vision, um, it, 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 you know, it, it, the Greek people are paying for that tremendously. They don't deserve that. And so it's our responsibility to not just reject, but also to propose what, what, you know, what, what we want instead. And I don't know, I think there are lots of reasons why, why it took as long as it did to get to this point, this um, idea that somehow you can't ask people to care about the environment when they are in a Place of economic hardship. I heard the same from Podemos' leadership. You know, at the height of the economic crisis. But to be fair, because unless you unless you place, as Macron has found out, unless you place the economic crisis, uh, the, the the environmental crisis, 
in a so- social and economic justice box as well as uh, take it out Absolutely. simply in an environmental box, then it's a fair... It's a, it's a fair worry. Well, look, I mean, but I'm not arguing, I've never been arguing for neoliberal solutions no, no, to the climate no. crisis. And Macron has shown us very clearly what it looks like when you sure. ask people who are already um, overstressed, overburdened, um, and, 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 and watching your government attack trade union rights, impose economic austerity, hand out tax cuts to millionaires and corporations. Oh, and by the way, our climate plan is for you to pay more for gas. People will reject that, just as in Ecuador they uh, rejected it. Um, you can't pair economic austerity um, and attacks on the social safety net um, with asking regular people to pay more for carbon and call that a climate policy. Not only will the carbon pricing not get the job done, which is yeah. its own problem because the, car- the, the, the pricing is too low, but you will generate your own backlash. And Macron's just an extreme example of this. I mean, I, I'm you know I live in the states right now, but I. I I recently moved from Ontario, which is where I've lived most of my life. I'm you Ontario, have two passports, Canada. correct? I do, yeah. And we had a you know liberal government that introduced carbon pricing uh, in Ontario <laughs> that was came to be associated with increased electricity costs. And we have our very own Donald Trump now, a right. guy named Doug Ford, famous because his brother was um, Rob Ford, yep. famous for smoking crack and getting away with it. And um, he ran on a platform of rolling back the carbon pricing and uh, giving people a buck a beer and rolling back sex education to 1992 levels. So, not a good he's platform. Done so, it all, so, he's done it all but buck a beer. So, so let me ask you then about this balance between the... So, so the way I sometimes talk about this is that I say to people, Martin Luther King didn't say, I have a nightmare. <laughs> he said, I, I have a dream. Uh, and what, 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 is, what is the balance, do you yeah. think? If, so, so I represent... Uh, a relatively working class part of the of England, Doncaster North, mm-hmm. um, high Brexit voting constituency. And I often think, and the reason I'm doing this Environmental Justice Commission in part is because I think, well, this has got to speak to my constituents. Yeah. What is the, if you were talking to a voter in my constituency, what is the balance between warning about the nightmare mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and the, the dangers for them and their kids? Yeah. And the dream, mm-hmm. the jobs, the air quality, the, you know, all of the benefits, the public transport benefits, all of the social justice yeah. benefits. Do yeah. you need, I mean, you need both? Yeah. I think you do. I think you need, you know, in the Sunrise Movement, they talk about promise and peril. Um, and that's the moment that we're in. And I think the peril that we're in isn't, isn't only climate. I think people are frightened for the, the future um, on many different fronts. I, mean, I think people don't even really see a future right now. Um, so I think we just need, I think we need a holistic analysis that, that brings together the way we're treating our natural environment like trash and the way we treat people like yeah. trash. This sort of, the extractive mindset, right, is not only about um, thinking we can exhaust nature without limit. It's also thinking we can exhaust people without limit. I mean, you look at what the gig economy, the way the gig economy treats workers, and this sort of the endless, the, um, just the complete disregard um, and exploitation uh, um, at the core of that. So I think we always need to connect the the, the environmental and the and the social and labor. Um, in the peril and the promise. So, you know, I use a frame, and I used it when I spoke at the labor conference a couple of years ago, um, that we need to move from the dig and gig economy to a a, a culture based on care and repair. Um, uh, and, you know, one of my, one of the, uh, one of the things I'm always banging on about in terms of the Green New Deal is that it's not just the it's not just the classic green jobs that we need to talk about, the, the, you know, the, the solar engineers and the people putting up wind turbines. That's all good, and we need that, and we can create millions of good jobs. Um, but there's a lot of low-carbon work that's already being done that is overwhelmingly done by women um, that is undervalued um, because it is women's work, uh, in overwhelmingly women of color doing care work. Um, and we need to fight to make those good jobs as well. So that's the care piece and the repair piece, um, I think, has to do with repairing our relationship to the earth, repairing our stuff instead of just throwing it away and being in these cycles of 
constant obsolescence and also repairing our relationships with the most abused communities, um, the people who have really borne the toxic burden. Um, so, I don't know, I, I, I think that we just, I, I, think it's, it's, I think we have the promise and the peril, but even more important is we have to constantly make the connections between what we're doing to the planet and what is being done to people. To people. Yeah. Then let me talk about, uh, ask about a related issue, which is system change and individual change. Um, I'm glad to say that there's a very good little booklet here, which I've taken, which is uh, nine things you can do about climate change. Now, I don't want to quote you out of context here, but uh, partly to be provocative, I just quote what you say in the book, because I think it's important for the way we frame discussions about climate change. You say this, the hard truth is that the answer to the question, what can I as an individual do to stop climate change, is nothing. The very idea that we as atomized individuals could play a significant part in stabilizing the planet's climate system is objectively nuts. Now, I know you're not saying people should like just do mm. what they like, right. but I think, I think if you think about the way that certainly the critique of like, Emma Thompson when she ended up at Extinction Rebellion, oh, she flew there, the criticism of AOC, it very much sort of builds on the idea that it's all about what, what is the individual doing. Mm-hmm. Talk about this question of system change and individual change and what, what we as individuals should do. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, as individuals, we should, do, um, we should do what we can to lower our carbon footprints. It's a good thing to do. Um, in many cases, it will make our bodies healthier. Um, it will prove to ourselves that actually it's not the end of the world. And, you know, we hear a lot of scaremongering about how our quality of life will collapse if we, if we take this crisis seriously. And it's good to know in your body that it isn't true. Um, but I think it's actually really, really dangerous to make a fetish of, um, you know, being like the perfect low-carbon uh, activist um, because it sends a message that you really can't join the movement until you've reached that level of purity. And the fact is that most people, and I'd imagine most people, you know, who you represent are too busy, too overloaded, don't have access to a lot of what they need to make exactly. those low-carbon choices, whether it's the kind of transit that they exactly. need, um, whether, whether it is you know, access even to healthy food. Um, we have a lot of places that, you know, I, I, I mean, if you look at where fast food restaurants are located versus where health food stores are located and so on and so on, right? Um, so I think it, I worry that this fetish... Um, uh, is a recipe for having a very privileged, overwhelmingly white movement, um, which has been true of the climate movement for a long time. Uh, And I think that that is a failure on a lot of different fronts. It means that it's not representing the people who are most impacted by our extractive economy because it is the poorest communities that get the dirtiest industries in their backyards, whose kids have asthma and bear the toxic burden in their bodies. Um, but also because, just strategically, I actually think that a mostly privileged movement isn't going to fight hard enough. <laughs> you know, the people who have the most to gain from the, the kind of transformative change mm. that we're talking about are the people who are getting the worst deal in our current economy. And they would fight for this future, not because it's better than apocalypse and extinction, but because it's better than Tuesday, right? Um, and so, you know, I think that there's been a real strategic mistake in thinking that, um, you know, it's possible to, win, to, to, to build a movement capable of winning the kind of structural change that we're talking about without having a really working-class movement. Um, Which the climate movement, for all its great yeah. virtues, is not yeah. at the moment. Has not, I mean, has not been. I mean, there is a wing of the climate movement that is the climate justice movement, and the climate movement is global and represents, you know, there's many different, there are many different climate movements, but there is a part of the climate movement that, as Arundhati Roy says, is it asks the question, how do I change without changing? <laughs> you know, what is the least I can possibly do? Um, in the face of this crisis, because this system is pretty much working well for me. I mean, can I get away with, you know, a marginal carbon tax, maybe an electric car? What is the least that I can do? Because I don't want to rock the boat because the boat is basically working for me. And, I mean, that makes sense for the the winners in our current economic system. You know, and um, the fact is we have an... um, 
incredibly and increasingly unequal economic system, right? And so the people who are not the winners of that economic system are not afraid of change because they are being left behind. But they're expressing their desire for change, you know, in in um, spasmodic and dangerous ways, like voting for Donald Trump or, um, you know, fill in the blank, blanks. Sorry. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I also think... It, it, sort of implicit in this that there's good news which is that most people do want to go green but are you going to make it possible for them to do so i, I often cite mm-hmm. this statistic that i think 60 percent of cars in norway that are sold are electric and i'm not saying electric cars are the answer to everything but and three yeah. percent are here that's now we all right. love the norwegians but it's not simply because norwegians are decent people no. it's because the incentives are to go green in norway yes. yeah uh, and, and therefore you're policy. not just saying it's all up to the um to the individual to do it Look, I mean, I often say I used to smoke a pack of cigarettes a day, and it wasn't that I didn't know that smoking was bad for me. I knew. Um, And I stopped smoking when my government basically turned me into a complete pariah by banning smoking um, in restaurants and bars, and I found myself in a very cold climate, shivering outside alone, um, miserably, you know, sucking on a cancer stick, and I just thought it wasn't a good look, you know, and I eventually just... Very sensible. Just gave it up. But, you know, I, I, I sometimes we need the help of government regulations. I'm willing yeah. to admit that I'm weak in that way, you talk, know? Talk to, us, talk to us about an, another big issue. This I just want to say yeah. one other thing about the personal thing. You know, I did, I, you saw a little clip of, of, yeah. of, of me on Sky News this morning yeah. um, with Adam Bolton. Did he ask you whether you came here by boat? He didn't. But, see, I, I, I asked him. I was, you know, I was dressed. I was dressed fairly smartly and before the cameras rolled I said do I do I look nice because I want to make sure that I'm in the yeah. hypocrite camp and not this the not the um Un- uh, crusty un- uncooperative crusty yeah, yeah. so and and, and and he was quite taken aback by that yeah. so he didn't ask me um um but but the point is you're either a hypocrite you know or you're a crusty who shouldn't be listened to there there is no way to win this game yeah. you know um, I mean, look at Greta. Uh, I mean, she sailed across the Atlantic. Has that quieted the trolls one bit? Um, the whole reason why this is happening is because they would rather change the subject. I think we should from- claim Krusty. <laughs> I think we should claim Krusty as a virtue. I think he might have. Let's uh, claim Krusty. Yeah. Let's claim hypocrite. Re- redefine and claim Krusty. Uh, talk to us about growth and mm-hmm. economic growth in this. Um, and. You know, because the, clearly there's a massive aspect of this, which is the developing world and the fact that, you know, we have, we've polluted the the, yeah. the atmosphere. Uh, we, developed countries, mm-hmm. have polluted the atmosphere and now we are uh, asking developing countries to, to not go down our route but to change. Um, and there's a huge debate in the movement about, you know, should you be agnostic about growth, anti-growth, but can yeah. you be anti-growth and still make this a working class movement? Talk to us about how you think about that. I, I think the way I think about it is I, I, I think what, what we cannot have is an economy that measures progress through the pursuit of indiscriminate growth. Um, I, I think that, that that is a recipe for what we have right now. Um, but I, 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 I am not a degrowth fanatic. Uh, um, I don't like the word. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, I don't feel it's. I don't think. You, I don't think you build a movement for degrowth. Um, and I also think there's going to be growth. So I think what we need is a designed, more deliberate economy where we identify the areas where we can have abundance, and we identify the areas where they, where, where we need to have contraction in those areas that are exhausting the natural world and polluting it, we need to design to contract those areas. Um, And we need to identify those areas where we can afford to have abundance that actually increase quality of life. I named a few, um, the arts, access to nature, the care professions. Um, There's a lot of research. All of which need to grow. All of which can grow as we decarbonize them. You know, I had had an event at the university where I teach Rutgers University a couple of weeks ago um, which which we call care work is climate work, and we brought together um, 
leaders of teachers unions and nursing unions and home care workers alliances to talk about how to decarbonize their professions. They're already low carbon, but, you know, home care workers, um, you know, have to burn carbon in a lot of a lot of times getting from house to house because they don't have access to public transit. Um, And there's definitely ways to make uh, you know, hospitals greener and so on. Um, you know, we know we, we already have some fantastic examples for how to green the education sector. Um, you know, so let's focus there and let's invest in those areas and let's make them better. Let's have smaller class sizes and pay teachers better and have more teachers and things like that. And, you know, our kids would be better educated and, and that's, you know, that's a, a place we can grow. Um, but the tricky thing is, we have to be honest that there is an actual risk of a Green New Deal carbon spike if we, if we, if we aren't serious about auditing our own carbon. Um, because if you're changing the yeah. building blocks of your society, this is a construction boom, yeah. right? Um, it is a huge construction boom and, and an right. economy that runs on fossil fuels. As you build out that renewable infrastructure— you're actually going to burn, ironically, a lot of carbon. And as you decide to pay people uh, you know, fair and good wages for their work, the Green New Deal in the U.S. talks about a jobs guarantee, um, you, you may well have people spending their salaries at Walmart and you know, fueling the cycle of endless consumption. So it, it, there's going to have to be a way in which we keep ourselves honest about this. So I don't know. What do you think? How do you deal with the degrowth question? Well, I think I'm in your camp, which is it depends. You know, Robert Kennedy said 50 years ago that growth was not the answer. And we've taken a long time to learn the lesson. It doesn't yeah. measure the things that really matter, environmental limits. Um, it, it, there's no sense of distribution. Mm-hmm. It, it partly for me means you can't, just che- you can't just have some green policies and then the rest of your economy. Yeah. And also, you've got to start getting into trade policy, and we can't just keep importing goods from other countries right. where you're using, you know, where you're sort of you're kind of importing your high carbon, yeah, yeah, or rather exporting your carbon. I think as we design these green new deals or green industrial policies or whatever we're going to call them, I think we don't have to settle this question, the growth question, which is a very very thorny question. But I do think we need to build in mechanisms to keep ourselves honest. So I think we need to be drawing on the world's leading emission reduction experts and be building in regular carbon audits to make sure that we aren't inadvertently, you know, burning too much carbon with the best of intentions, because we could well do that. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Okay, let's take questions now. I'll take them in groups of three. Uh, yes, question is sort of midway down on the left-hand side. And if you say your name as well. Claire Sakia, I'm the Climate Change Director. What's your first name, sorry? Claire. Claire. Claire at IIED. Um, we're running up to COP26. Um, well, we, in fact, we've got the next COP to go, but in the next um, 
just over a year, we've got a lot to do on climate action. And the politics globally just isn't looking good. Uh, the UK is leading the COP um, next year, but is very distracted. What, what can we possibly be doing? Good question. And I think along the road, just the gentleman. Yeah. Uh, Joel from Carbon Trekker. You mentioned the, um, obviously the fossil fuel industry, a um, major problem, and you just mentioned the 2008 financial crisis and the collapse of the financial system. So I guess my question for you is, what should we be guarding against, um, thinking back to, for example, 2010, when BP almost collapsed, there were sort of talks to rescue these oil companies. So how do we not repeat the mistakes of 2008 by bailing out the fossil fuel industry with no questions asked, not putting conditions on shutting them down, executive pay, those sorts of things. So how can we be better prepared next time? Hmm. Okay, that's a good question. And then, yes, the lady here. Hi, thanks. My name's Goodwin Gibbons. I'm a PhD student here at Imperial. Um, I was wondering, thank you for a great talk, by the way, that was great. What's your PhD on? Uh, I do climate science great. and atmospheric physics. Um, so I was wondering just if you could comment on what role you think negative emissions might play in helping to explain the gravity of emissions that make it into the atmosphere. Just um, say the last bit again, how, what role negative emissions can play? Yeah, maybe for example in helping to understand how hard it is to undo emissions that have been done, or anyway, what role you see for them in the, in the future. Hmm. Thank what, you. What was your name, sorry? Goodwin. Goodwin, thanks. Anybody have any easy questions? <laughs> yeah, like negative emissions. Uh, yeah, you can do the hard ones. Uh, so, so, well, I think there's a quite a good range of, of things. I mean, just, I'm glad Claire asked this question about COP26 because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with British understatement, Claire said we were distracted. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, my, I was at Copenhagen, so were I you? I remember. Yeah, um, you know, this requires every ounce of diplomatic muscle to, to, to make this a success, even uh, even when things are, when the stars are well aligned and they're not that well aligned. So talk to us about that, what we can do, and the fossil fuel companies and negative emissions. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so what can you do? Um, so I think people are doing a lot, um, I, and I think that, that we are seeing a real, um, a real shift in... And, and the political class feeling like they need to respond, whether the policies are really there with teeth is another question. But I think that, um, that, that, that there has been that sense of emergency, that declaration of, an, of, of emergency from below, the sort of breaking of the cycle of people feeling terrified alone, staring at their lonely screens, and then feeling like there's something wrong with them because everybody else is just talking about Brexit. I think we owe a lot um, to Extinction Rebellion and the student strikers for creating spaces for people to come together and be like, okay, um, it's not just me. (laughs) Um, I, I also see this as an emergency. But, you know, as as I said earlier, I think no is not enough. I don't think it's enough to just declare an emergency because emergencies can are dangerous. States of emergencies are dangerous when you have untrustworthy elites. They can be used in all kinds of ways. You can declare a climate emergency and say that's why we need to shut down the borders and just look after our own. We know what climate justice is. The Green New Deal comes out of decades of work um, from movements in the global south and in frontline communities. And that's the importance of having our yes, having the vision that we are putting forward and working with political forces who are committed to turning it into law and making sure that they're committed. Uh, In terms of... uh, Vested interests, the fossil fuel companies... The divestment well, campaign has been a great sort of success. It has been, but there is, you know, and we need to go after the banks as well. We need to go after the banks and the hedge funds um, and the insurance companies that are underwriting this in this industry. And I would um, encourage um, people to read Bill McKibben's really excellent essay in The New Yorker um, that really mapped the way in which these industries, the fossil fuel uh, companies are being uh, underwritten by, and, and, you know, by companies like Black. BlackRock and J.P. Morgan and so on. We need to choose our targets in the way that we did in the fossil fuel divestment movement. 
And in terms of the companies themselves, we need to guard against um, what is sometimes called profitable bankruptcy, right? Which we saw with the coal companies, right? Where um, they declared bankruptcy, paid off their, um, you know, their executives handsomely, um, paid off in some cases their memberships at golf clubs um, and screwed their workers and screwed communities. I think we are in the dying days of profits um, being made in this sector. And I believe the public has a right to those profits. Um, this is an industry that is known since the 1970s that its business model was was warming the planet. Yep. They spread doubt. They spread lies. Covered it up. Um, and, and now we are stuck with the bill. And climate justice doesn't just mean that the people on the front lines of the crisis um, need to benefit from the solutions. It also means that the people who created the crisis with their eyes wide open need to pay for the, for, for the costs of this. And so we need to figure out how to get the profits from the dying days of fossil fuels. Just on negative emissions. Yeah, negative Just emissions. help us out here. Sorry, well, we, so, I mean, I think you're talking about yeah. carbon drawdown, right? That, 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 yeah. that what the IPCC has told us is that even yeah. if we do everything possible to decarbonize our economy, um, our economies globally um, in this very tight time frame, we have already um, put too much carbon in the atmosphere beyond safe levels. So we actually need to draw some down. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's a few ways of doing that. Um, you know, so we're not talking about carbon capture technologies that are that are connected to new pollution. We're talking about the idea of air capture. So, um, so there are you know some technologies where you build kind of metal trees and actually suck that carbon out of the air and bury it underground. I, you know, I think actual trees are are pretty good at doing it. Um, you know, it doesn't require like as much mining yeah. <laughs> um, to get all that metal. Um, so. Uh, like know, some, people I, yeah. said, sorry, yeah. some people have said, sorry, some people have said, and I don't know what you think of that countries should set targets for negative, for, to get into not just zero, not just net zero, but negative, negative emissions. Right. Which is one thing you you know you could you, yeah. you, you could do. You I, could. I mean, I, but but I also think you know one of the things that's exciting about it and connecting it with land rehabilitation, reforestation, revegetation is that you know it, it should be connected with indigenous land rights. Um, it should be connected with more sustainable farming. Um, and it also is a way of addressing the fact that we also have an extinction crisis, right, and a biodiversity crisis. And just doing the right things when it comes to carbon does not necessarily redress this. And I think that George Mambio has written really wonderfully about how, you know, solving the extinction crisis and solving the climate crisis can be done in tandem um, I would just add on Claire's question about COP26. I mean, there needs focus from the government, much more focus than I think there is. Um, I think you need a much better near-term target uh, for 2030 because 2050, you know, the IPCC have told us we've got 10 years. We're going to be trying to persuade other countries, including Europe, et cetera, to, to, to up their targets from Paris. We can't do that by saying, well, we're sticking to where we are for 2030, whether you agree with Labour's net zero or not. You've got to, you've got to, be, more, um, uh, you've got to be more ambitious. And I think the movement is really important in this. I mean, when I was the climate change secretary at Copenhagen, we weren't even hosting uh, the COP, but it was a massive movement here around Copenhagen. Yeah. Now, you don't sure. want to cr- create huge expectations and huge disappointment, but I think the movement yeah. push gl- nationally, globally, is really... Really matters. Let, let's yeah. take more. Yeah. Let's take more questions. Yeah, we've got a question over here. I just like to pick up on the point. No, what's your name? Like, Sorry, Steve Sprung. Hi, Steve. I just like to pick up on the point you were talking about um, from the top and from below, um, mm-hmm. because in this country, um, in the late seventies, uh, when Tony Benn was the Minister of Industry in this country, he encouraged workers to come in who were threatened with unemployment at the time and talk about what they could do to change about it, what they could do, what, like, what positive things they could come forward with um, instead of facing redundancies. And you've got to remember, that was the start of the mass redundancies in this country across the whole of the north of England, which less led to the disenchantment, which led to the Brexit vote in the kind of areas you come from, Ed, yeah? And what Tony Ben did, he invited the workers in from Lucas Aerospace... And the works in Lucas Aerospace um, were threatened with redundancy. Uh, 18,000 workers worked for Lucas Aerospace. And they came up in response to Tony, precisely from Tony Benn from the top, saying, come up with an alternative plan of what you could make instead of making 
uh, jet aeroplanes for the military, right? They were threatened with redundancy really because of new technology, yeah. okay? Yeah. And they came up with basically a Green New Deal plan. Yeah, they did, yeah. And their whole plan totally was, right. was, the whole plan was, and what they did, they didn't just come up with, and it was accepted by the workers, all 18,000 workers, precisely because it offered them jobs. Yeah. But it was, a green new de- it was a Green New Deal. That okay, kind of thanks, Steve. Yeah? Okay. Exciting. Sorry, in the middle. Hi, my name is Alicia. I was just wondering what you think the role of big business would play alongside governments for a Green New Deal and what you think about CEOs like Jeff Bezos who claim that they want to start sustainable initiatives but then their whole business model is built on like fast and throwaway Cardboard boxes. Okay, so this is the final, probably the final round. I'm going to take a few. I'm going to take a, a couple, a few more, and then Naomi will get a choice as to who she, uh, which ones she answers. Uh, yeah, uh, towards the back. Oh, hi, George Taylor. I'm a hi. postgrad at Center of Environmental Policy. Um, I think it was the Republican Party that first proposed a carbon tax in America, but somewhere along the lines, uh, it became a very leftist issue. I'm wondering how we reconcile that and how we achieve bipartisan support. Okay, there's an interesting question there, not just about the carbon tax, but bipartisan support. Uh, Yet there's a lady here. You mentioned that... What's your name, sorry? Sorry, my name's Rebecca. I'm from the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries. Um, You mentioned that Labour had done a particularly good job in thinking about green issues, Um, but the Conservatives are in power at the moment, and uh, their voter base is largely people in the baby boomer generation, Mm -hmm. and often it's considered that this issue is quite a a young person's issue and a future generation's issue, in fact. How, how do we make this argument appeal to those generations who get out and vote more? And also, there's just more of them. So if they go out and they're voting for different parties that perhaps don't have this at the top of their agenda, how mm. do we, how so do we appeal o- to them? So the older generation. Yeah. Why, why don't we kind of group those a little bit? Because there's, a, there's two questions about sort of the role of uh, business, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's an interesting generational question. Yeah. There's a question about consensus, because I, I didn't ask you this actually in the introduction, but you know, how important is a consensus? Because the more radical you are, maybe the less you get the consensus. And then there's the Lucas plan. But, but just take them as you want, and then we can... Yeah. Oh, so the question about uh, companies like Amazon, who you know, talk a good game um, about being green companies, but... Um, yeah, uh, so I have a business model that is built on cardboard boxes um, and, uh, and, and a pretty high carbon way of shopping generally, um, moving stuff around in boxes on trucks um, to people's houses. So it's really interesting what's been happening over the past, just the last few months with workers at these companies. It's been a real shift. There's um, a... Uh, Amazon Workers for Climate Justice group that I think 1,600 of them signed um, a uh, petition. They brought it to the shareholders um, calling for Amazon to massively up its game um, when it comes to decarbonization. So I I guess I don't put a lot of stock in what um, CEOs declare they're going to do. I've been around for a while. I've heard a lot of pledges. Remember when Richard Branson promised he was going to solve climate change at the Clinton Global Initiative um, and put all of his profits from all of his transportation companies into coming up with the solution to climate change. Have we heard anything about that lately? Um, anyway, I'm, I'm cynical about that, but I'm not cynical about workers' power. And, um, and, and um, for the first time, there was a job action at Amazon. Um, I think more than 1,000 Amazon workers participated in the climate strike um, a few weeks ago, um, uh, there was a, a big, good showing from Microsoft, good showing from Google. Um, uh, Google workers, and the te- the, there's really interesting things going on in the tech sector with worker organizing right now. We've seen big walkouts, uh, 20,000 workers at Google walking off the job. And it's connected to this, to, to demanding higher ethics from these companies, whether it's sexual harassment, whether it's not doing contracts with the military, not doing contracts with border agents and being part of the machinery of deportation. Um, once again, it's like an inside-outside pincer where you have um, you know, university students 
students saying we don't want these companies recruiting on our campuses if they're if they're if they're part of deportation and surveillance. But you also have workers. You know, the hashtag is tech won't build it if you want to look into it. Um, and there's there's just great stuff going on now, frankly. And they are pushing some more meaningful changes from these companies. So I'm not ready to say that Amazon is green, but after this, you know, ahead of the climate strike, when it was clear that there was going to be this big walkout at Amazon, Bezos announced that he was buying um, 100,000 electric vehicle delivery uh, for, for delivery. And, that, you know, that's, that's a pretty substantial change. Um, he also, in, you know, upped his targets and so on. It's not, it's not where they should be, and people walked out anyway because they weren't buying it. But... It's something new to see that this level of tech worker organizing, and I'm excited about it. Um, so, the Lucas plan, you in favor of the what Steve was talking about? That's brilliant. I yeah. mean, it's a really, really important labor history for us to know, um, and it's also important for us to remember. You know, the next time there is, uh, you know, a factory being shut down. Um, you know, or, or dock workers using, losing their jobs, that there needs to be these types of collaborations. And the just transition is absolutely central to this, to if we're going to, if it's going to be genuinely a movement for everybody. Exactly. And these workers should have, the, before their machines are sold off and before all their, their assets are auction, are, go to auction, they should have a chance to develop a plan to turn their workplaces into green cooperatives. And if they've got a good plan, then it should be funded. And, and they need solidarity from, from, you know, they need solidarity from academics who can help them come up with the plans. Where I've seen this happen, there's been wonderful collaborations with academia and workers. Um, and the green movement needs to show up for these workers. Yeah. So... Um, you know, the bipartisanship question, like, I could go on for a long time, but I'm just going to try to be brief. Um, so we can maybe one day, once again, get bipartisan support for a marginal carbon tax. Um, but the problem is that this party has gone so far off the deep end and wasted so many years that the kind of policy that you could get bipartisan support uh, for would be so very weak and inadequate um, in, 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 in considering how much we need to do in, in, in so short a time that I think it's a waste of energy. I think what we need to do is build um, super majorities uh, and try to get climate real climate plans passed, Green New Deal, which will not get bipartisan support. And then we need to roll it out in communities and do what FDR did. And FDR was very, very smart when he rolled out the, the, the New Deal. He made sure, he looked at a map, he looked at the communities that voted Republican in 1933, and he um, put Green New Deal projects in those communities where they didn't support the Green New Deal. And they had jobs and they had services. And lo and behold, in 1936, many of them voted for him. Um, and that's how you got bipartisan support, by actually creating jobs and showing people what it looks like on the ground. Um, and the Institute of Actuaries um, question about how do you motivate the older generation as well as the younger generation? I'm glad you asked. Um, this is a passion of mine um, because I, th- I actually think it's quite... Um, dangerous the way in which the climate crisis is being framed as a young people's issue. It is true that young people, that the younger you are, the longer you will live in a climate-disrupted future, um, and the more climate disruption you will see uh, um, if we do not change course. Um, But if you actually look at the timelines for when this is really going to be hitting us, and and we're already experiencing some major disruption. Um, It is absolutely going to be in your lifetime and mine, um, and in the lifetime of those, uh, of of middle-aged people. And what I say to them is at least the young people will be able to run. Um, (laughs) I have tried this as a new motivating tactic. (laughs) And I'm actually pretty serious, because if you look at who is most vulnerable... Uh, to climate disruption, climate change exacerbates pre-existing vulnerabilities, right? So the people who are most vulnerable in disasters are the elderly, are the disabled, um, are are, are people who are ill, um, who have mobility issues, and who need there to be some kind of infrastructure of care to help them. And this is no joke. Um, and the idea that we just offload this onto young people is, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it is 
in my opinion, a moral atrocity, but it is also uh, um, just for base self-interest, a, a very silly thing for middle-aged people to do. Great. So I'm going to ask you a final question. This um, talk that we've, the conversation we've had today is going to go out on my podcast. This is a shameless plug for my podcast uh, <laughs> called Reasons to be Cheerful. Um, downloadable on all good platforms. At least, uh, people, uh, 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 at least the young people will be able to run. Is that a reason to be cheerful? Yeah. <laughs> I want to give you the final word. Tell us a reason to be cheerful, and but also, you know, what you know, send this audience out to go and not just buy your book, they should all buy be your book, uh, straight after this, but but to go and do things. What 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 what, do you, what message do you want to leave them with? Um well I I like the the slogan of the UK climate strikers. Um they wrote a piece during the ahead of the March fifteenth climate strikes. They said Greta Greta was the spark, but we are the wildfire. And, um, you know, I said before that if, if we want to win this epic battle, and it is a battle because we really are up against forces that are protecting a huge amount of capital, then we really have to be on fire for it. It's going to take an extraordinary amount of energy and focus and determination. Um, young people right now um, are, you know, as Greta said at the UN, giving up their childhoods to... Uh, um, to try to wake up the world. And so I think we all have to ask ourselves what we are willing to give up, what we're willing to um, really have that kind of, that kind of focus for. Um, and so I guess my reason to be cheerful <laughs> um, is that there's a huge generational shift going on right now. And I think that our generation, we grew up in the grips of... Um, the neoliberalism's war on the imagination, right? Um, you know, whether or not we were Thatcherite, we still absorbed this idea that there is no alternative, that, that we had reached the end of the history, um, that there was nothing but this, um, you know, the, 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 there was no escape from this bleak reality. Anything we tried to do would be worse. And we really got the hard sell, you know? Um, but I think that, that, that people who have come of age in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, when the neoliberal project has been in ideological retreat, if not in retreat with policies, the policies are still there, um, but the hard sell isn't there. So we now have a lot of young people who never got the memo that history was over, who never we're told that they weren't supposed to dream or that there is no alternative and, and are, are, are daring to, to have those dreams and to have that, that, um, that vision of a future that, that doesn't look like every cli-fi movie we've ever seen. So uh, I think that's a really, that, for me, that's a huge reason to be chill for. I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime. Um, and and um, I believe in it. You know, we've got a chance. <laughs> So let, let, me, uh, let, let me do some thank yous. I want to thank Imperial, the Grantham Institute, the IPPR. Look out for the Commission on, Economic Just- on Environmental Justice. We're going to be uh, talking about how we build this route map uh, to the future that uh, Naomi uh, is talking about. Be the fire. That is, that is uh, first by the book, uh, then... <laughs> Then they played the, it on fire. Then, no, no, no. Fire. Uh, uh, then be the fire. Uh, please put your hands together for Naomi Klein. Thank you. Great job. Great job. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Whoa, we're in the outro. Should I give special thanks to IPPR? A special thanks to the IPPR Environmental Justice Commission, which I continue to co-chair with Caroline Lucas and Laura Sands. Uh, and they uh, made possible that conversation. Thanks to Naomi, obviously. Before we go, we should say we are going back out on the road. It's been a long time because there was the election and then there was all the stuff going on with, with Brexit and we weren't able to book any yeah. live shows throughout the whole of the autumn. But come the springtime, we're the back. green shoots 
The Green Shoots the Green of Recovery. Shoots of podcast recovery. Yeah. It's Thursday the 12th of March. We're at King's Place in the evening. You can buy tickets now. And we're going to be talking about the environment and climate change because it's part of their Nature Unwrapped series running throughout 2020. Really looking forward to it. This is a great venue. It's it's in London. If you know London, it's in the new King's Cross area where the Guardian have their headquarters. We did a live show there probably like 18 months ago and it was one of the best ones and uh, we're, we're really excited. We're going to have a blast. We are. Get, that's exactly what we're going to have. We're going to have a blast. And Emma Caution produces our podcast. We're back up in research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed made the music. James Deacon made the eye dance. And the artwork wasn't designed by Emily Power or who else wasn't it designed by? It wasn't designed by Lucy Hall, who gets a shout out from her friend Daisy Crawley. So neither designed by Emily Power nor Lucy Hall, but it was in fact designed by Henry Cole. He's been in Mexico. He's been holding the fort. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>